He's been incredibly busy at the All Callising uh, office recently, uh, so we haven't been able to podcast for about a week now, but we've now got some time and we're going to sit down to go through one of our latest blogs, which looks at short-lived cars. Now, the reason for this uh, blog was um, I noticed a Vauxhall Antara on the road the other day, and they all seem to be, you know, around 62 plates, something like that. I don't remember ever seeing a brand new Antara. They always seem to be quite old. Did some research on it and I realised it was just a short-lived car, didn't do do particularly well. And then I thought, well, why don't we just have a look at all these sorts of cars in one list? Uh, pick out, you know, the, the ones that we think that our UK readers will be more familiar with and hopefully get a lot of people to look at them and think, I uh, do remember that. Um, so anyway, we've, uh, Richard has written the blog and we're just going to have a, you know, fairly short podcast just going through them. So, uh, we're going to start with a, the Audi A2. Obviously, there isn't an A2 at the moment. Um, but there was one at one point, which was a five-door hatchback. But if you look at it, it looks a bit like an MPV. It lasted six years, which isn't too bad. But it's one of those cars that may not have lived for very long, but it was fairly well received at the time. It just, you know, maybe the demand or the, the car industry just wasn't ready for it at the time. Do you reckon it was well received because it was an Audi? Because personally, I don't think it was much of a looker. Well, no, it, it it didn't look great, and we've got a couple of other cars that are quite similar to that that don't particularly look great, but they are great cars. Um, the the A2 was well received because the interior was pretty uh, good quality. It was a little bit different from everything that else that Audi offered. And um, the, the thing about it is, if you look at the Audi, BMW, and Mercedes range now, you know, uh, MPV slash hatchback hybrids are quite in fashion now with the two series, for example. Um, but I don't think the, the the industry was ready for it at the time. It also had a 1.2 diesel engine, which was, quite frankly, astonishing for incredibly low emissions and for, you know, well above par performance. Um, and the reason I think the A2 didn't do well was it was too far ahead of its time, which is a somewhat of a recurring theme of a couple of the cars that we're going to mention in this podcast. So, what, what, what do you reckon? Well, there was no Audi A1 back then either, so this was the entry-level Audi. Yeah, yeah. Um, you touched on it a, a bit ago, but the A2 was resistant to the sort of the looks of the all the other Audis at the time, and it stuck out like a sore thumb. Mm. And I think if Skoda had a bit more of a reputation at the time, um, the Skoda brand would have suited the A2, or um, I, I pushed maybe Volkswagen. But I think it was a body that didn't suit the Audi brand. Yeah, because Audi back then, and still kind of do have that Russian doll effect. They all look similar yeah. to each other, whereas this one, just four rings that really made it look kind of happy. Yeah, well, it wasn't an MPV, but if you looked at it, you'd think that it was. Oh, yeah. And I don't think there is an Audi MPV now either. They use Skoda, uh, Seat and Volkswagen for their MPVs, but they don't go anywhere near the Audi. And I think that probably is why it didn't work that well, which is a shame, really, because the A2 was was actually quite well received. And I've not looked at the A2 range at all since then. No, it's the A1 and the A3 at the moment, so there is no gap. There's a Q2, but it's not in yeah, the same ilk, so though, is it? If the A1 is the Polo and the A3 is the Golf, that there's nothing that could pick up the new A2 either. Mm. They'd have to try something new, and they probably won't because they've tried it and it didn't work. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the next one is the Ford Cougar. Chris, do you want to start with, you know, why this didn't work? Or why you think it didn't work? I don't know, to be honest, because it was quite a sporty-looking model. 
I mean, I don't think it's aged particularly well, but you did get quite a bit in it. Like, for its time, aircon, leather seats, heated seats, that sort of thing, alloys, body core bumpers, I suppose that was a thing back then as well. It, it wasn't particularly fast, though, so that might have been why. There was a faster engine that you could get. Yeah, the 2.4. Right. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe I'm comparing it by today's standards. I, I don't know. This is somewhat related to what we've just talked about, the A2 going against the brand. Other than the GT and the Mustang, Ford is not known to be a sporty brand. And the coupe, a coupe, coupe, however you want to pronounce it, isn't in line with what people associate with Ford. Mm. Ford is mid-range, run-of-the-mill, mundane almost, every man's car. And the Cougar was an attempt at using... It uses uh, Ford's New Edge styling, which is, at that time, what the the Focus, the, the Mark 1 Focus looked like, the Mondeo. And you can see the Focus and the Mondeo in, in the Cougar. If you go to the blog, you can see a picture of all the cars we're going to mention. And I think it didn't look enough like a sporty car to pull off being a coupe. Um, it had mixed reviews in terms of performance anyway, um, but... It was a successor to a car that did actually look like a, coupe, a sporty car, which is the Ford Probe, but the Cougar doesn't. The Cougar just looks, like, to me, looking at it right now, it looks like a three-door Mondeo. To be honest, I think it was all like the Ford KA or car, whatever you pronounce that. Yeah, well, that, that had the new edge styling. Yeah. And I think it didn't work out because it looks like, in, in my opinion, it looks like a three-door Mondeo. Nobody wants a three-door Mondeo. Mm. Um, obviously, the Mondeo has a reputation of being boring, and mundane and taking away two doors isn't going to suddenly make it sporty. And if you think about the competitors that the, that Ford Cougar had at the time, what was that the Celica Hyundai Coupe? Yeah, like that. it it just it just didn't look sporty enough. Mm. Didn't last very long. And um, well, that was that. The next one is uh, one of my favourites from this list. To be honest with you, is it the Ford CRZ? Sorry, I mean the Honda CRZ. Um, I really like this because I'm a great advocate of a hybrid and electric and, and cars going green. And this was a hybrid, sporty looking, I wouldn't call it a sports car, because obviously the, the hybrid elements, you know, makes the engine not be able to compete with actual sports car in the, in the same segment. Extra weight and stuff like that involving hybrid tech, so. Um, but it, in my opinion, it was a hybrid, like before hybrids were cool. Um, with a body kit. So if you think now of the, what is it, the Toyota HR, which is the, the CHR, that's the crossover, there's the Prius and things like that. Yeah, so the, so the CHR, for, for example, has a, you know, a really aggressive sort of almost sporty body kit. But at the time of the CRZ, it, it was the Prius and, you know, they had a bit of a duff reputation, these hybrids, but the CRZ came in and was like, no, look, you can have a hybrid and it looks really good. Um, and obviously it was advertised like a sports car but without the guilt. Um, it was a, it was a, in my opinion, it was a great car with too much innovation. And, um, it had, it was an award winning car as well. Um, and I'm, it's a shame that it didn't work out. Um, but I don't think it was short lived in a negative way like a lot of these cars in here. I think perhaps it, you know, the world wasn't ready for a sports car with a hybrid. Um, and they gave it plenty enough time uh, to, to get it to work, but it was just simply too early. Um, what, what, what do you think? What was on my mind with the CRZ was that it's almost like two categories of car that shouldn't be combined. You know, a hybrid with a sports car, but they were going for hybrid in terms of 
fuel economy, whereas today, most of the supercars have all of hybrid technology for the instant performance. So maybe they were just looking at it the wrong way. Yeah. Maybe it should have been used for performance instead, but then it's a lot of extra weight, and the car itself is quite a small, sort of nippy little I don't know, runaround, so maybe you wouldn't. Yeah, and bec- what seems to be a trend on, on a lot of this list is when manufacturers try to innovate, it's a bit hit and miss, even when they come out with a really outstanding product. And the kind of brands that struggle the most, I find, are non-European niche and innovative cars really struggle here. So, you know, the CRZ was a hybrid sports car that's all, that was already niche at the time. Mm. And then a Japanese brand on top of it means that it really struggled to sell purely because Oh, the only type of people that, that bought it were the type of people that quite, were probably innovators themselves, if that makes sense. And the hybrid version would have only been able to have an automatic gearbox as well. Yeah, so it, it was certainly not cheap. Niche cars, hybrid cars are not cheap, and they're still not the cheapest brands. So if you think about these technologies back then, mm. it was it was quite an expensive car that maybe a lot of people who were looking around for a car like this was a bit of a punt for them, and it was too early. Um, obviously, the name CZ has been retired now, but it's somewhat having its mantle passed over to the Clarity, which isn't quite uh, the same car, but it's a spiritual successor. Um, and maybe, you know, Honda are like, oh, do you know what, if we re- to re-release a CZ, maybe the reputation of the old ones was to carry on with it, and maybe the name change is just to give it a bit of an extra uh, push. Yeah. Um, Alright, the next car on our list is a car that wasn't, it's not quite uh, niche, it's not too innovative, but it, it was, in terms of the European market, it was a complete flop. Okay. And it's the Chrysler Upsilon. The Lancia version of the car has actually been around for a while, and outside of Europe, did go on for, I think, about a decade. Um, but in Europe, and especially in Britain, it flopped completely. It seemed to be the car that you would buy if you didn't want something that everybody else had. Like, if you didn't want a Fiat 500 or a Ford Fiesta, something like that. This model sort of sat between both of them and uh, didn't really have anything to sell itself on. Yeah, I mean, what this car reminds me of is the PT Cruiser. Yeah. Where um, the way it looks on the outside is the only thing that they put that much of an effort on. And in my opinion... Chrysler with the Upsilon, they made a car that just looked a little bit odd on purpose and said, I thought to themselves, you know, if we make a car that looks different enough, it's going to sell. No, it won't. Um, you know, it was not well reviewed. It was unsafe. Well, I wouldn't call it unsafe, but it only had two stars end cap, mm. which is unheard of. A lot of people don't even look at cars with three, four, <laughs> probably not. Until five car- is almost like it has to be five or nothing. And it, it was just not a great car that didn't look great on the outside or in, didn't have a great engine. I was like, wh- you know, what were they thinking? I think until until this car came along, most of Chrysler's range were just very overly American. Huge sort of boats for the road, pretty much. Yeah, so yeah. Maybe they just thought, oh, you know what the UK likes? Hatchbacks. Let's have a go at that. And uh, they did it in all the wrong ways. <laughs> Yeah, I don't wait. I don't like the way it looks. Um, and judging by people who reviewed it at the time, they didn't like the way it drives. 
So this car was short-lived for a good reason. Not all cars are, you know, short-lived because they're quite poor. Um, usually, you know, low demand or something like that. But this car was just not a great car. Didn't do well in the European yeah. market. But the interesting thing, though, if you know, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, you know, I, I thought it was all right. Outside of Europe, though, it did sell for a long time, but it didn't resonate with Europeans. Were probably used to to body kits that are just pretty standard. Mm. People like Fiestas, Golfs, and I suppose that's a very British thing, isn't it? You, you know, they stick to what they like. Yeah. Have the same meal every day, all the rest of it. That's what they like. And for the same money, you could get a very well specced Ford Fiesta or whatever, rather than just pay similar money for a not a less desirable car, but just one that doesn't stand out from what you know. Yeah, certainly enough to make the choice. Our next car on the list is a car that I actually have only ever seen one of them, and it's always parked. I've never seen one move, uh, and that's a smart roadster. Um, and this car was destined. To fail. Um, it was released at a time where Smart as a brand was struggling with their other, you know, models, um, just the, the normal Smarts with massive unreliability and problems as a whole. Then they were to release a Roadster, which, you know, as a body kit or as a, as a, a type doesn't sell that well anyway. Mm. You know, you'd, other than the Audi TT, in general, roadsters are quite expensive. Two-seater, so they're not practical. So you're, you're talking about people without kids. Um, you know, because they're expensive, you know, that rules a lot Literally of people out. a Sunday car, pretty much. Yeah, so why would you need a smart roadster that didn't have very good performance? It was unreliable, and to be honest, it looked like a, a, a poor kit car. Mm, it, um, it does, actually. Uh, so it was, in my opinion, it didn't work out and it was short-lived because it was too radical of a design by a brand that wasn't established and had massive backlash as it is. Nor would you associate that type of car with smart. Yeah, they make small cars, but not sports cars. No. Well, uh, there are Mercedes and, um, who's the other group that, uh, them? Daimler, I think. Is it? I think it's Mercedes and a Japanese brand that do, um, smarts. Suzuki, Whatever. Um, anyway, it, I, in my opinion, this was short-lived because it was destined to fail. It did. Um, and I don't think they've tried it since. I think they now only stick to the, the small, small uh, smart cars. And I don't think they do anything other than the 4.4 is possibly the biggest. Um, sticking on the subject of roadsters, convertibles, that type of thing. Renault Wind, um, which I have seen quite a few of. And every time I've looked at a Renault Wind, I have thought, oh, it's a nice-looking car. But when I sit down and think about it, I do think, oh, yeah, it is a nice-looking car, but would I buy one? No, I wouldn't. I've never actually seen one of these myself. But looking at the picture of it now, I do quite like the roof. It's like a Targa-style roof, which you really don't see many of, especially with convertibles. It's something you don't see on Porsche, really. Relating this to what we were talking about earlier with a smart roadster, if you are looking for one of these two cars, there's only a small pool that are out there so only not you know for a thing you can get a Ford Fiesta convertible. I can't even think of any Ford convertible. So if someone's out there thinking, oh, do you know, I'm retired now. I, I want a convertible to enjoy my retirement. Brand certainly, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned the MR2, mm. uh, BMW Zs, uh, what's another uh, Golf convertible, I suppose, but Audi TT convertible, A3 convertible, <laughs> the Ford Sport car as well, maybe. Well, yeah, yeah but there, yeah. there aren't many of them, no. and then the. Renault Wind is an entry-level, very cheap convertible, 
But if you're price conscious, you wouldn't be buying a convertible at all. Yeah. 3500 convertible, even that, even them, I don't see many of them because, um, price conscious people don't get convertibles because you have to pay an extra just to have the privilege. Mm. So if you're going to get a convertible, you're going to spend more. So you're not price conscious, are you? So, and on top of that, there, there are no diesels. You have to get a petrol. And judging that this was, I think, um, 2010s, early 2010s, mm. um, petrols weren't where they are today either. Um, it's quite dinky. Um, it, it doesn't have a sporty feel to it. No. Um, it's not, it hasn't got very sporty engines. So the convertible would purely be just to have the wind through your hand. That's pretty much it. Even the type of convertible it is though, it's almost like a bit of a novelty. A bit like the city cars you get with retractable roof. Yeah. It's almost like not a proper convertible. Though saying that is a bit like saying a Lamborghini, something like yeah. Spider isn't a proper convertible. But I don't know. Strange shape. I admire Renault for trying. And I admire, I, you know, I like when manufacturers try something different and they're not that boring. But when you break it down, there was just no demand for it. If you were to think, if you, if, if you were to think to yourself, who's the ideal customer for this? You'd be struggling mm. to, to create a persona and then there wouldn't be that many of those people. Three years is really poor. Three years is like they had already made up their mind very quickly. There was no demand and there weren't going to be demand for it either. And they didn't want to try either. Simply. Yeah, but I, like, like I said, I do yeah. admire people who buy these cars that are different. Um, we mentioned, we did, a, we've written a blog uh, a while ago on, um, fringe cars you could consider. We did a previous blog post, uh, a, a podcast and, uh, I, I mentioned, you know, I like when manufacturers try different things, but it doesn't always work out. Um, but again, it wasn't a particular, it was a particularly bad car. Um, essentially it was a Clio. Um, well, it was more of a Twingo with a, with a convertible roof, really. Mm. But it, it wasn't that, it was a poor car. It just, the demand just wasn't there. Which takes us to our next car, which I've always found really bizarre. Um, it's the Vauxhall Antara. Um, I've seen quite a few of these. Like I said, it, right at the beginning, it always has, um, it's always in 62 plates or 60, 60, uh, not 62, 12 plates, 11 plates and stuff like that. Mm. And you haven't, I haven't seen a new one ever. I never saw a new Vauxhall Antara. Um, and I didn't really think about it at the time, but now I'm sat, sat down, went on the Wikipedia page, looked at the sales figures. Um, and it was just a car that was not well reviewed at all. Mm. It was a really poor car inside. Possibly not outside. There was nothing wrong with the way it looked outside. Um, but it did, the reason why I researched is because, you know, crossovers are one of the most popular uh, body kits or body styles at the moment, mm. other than just straight up hatchbacks. Also one of the most competitive sections as well. Yes. Um, but it turns out on research, it was very expensive for a basic car on the inside. Um, the only good thing that I found in various reviews from What Car, Auto Express, Car Wow, was the fact that it was big was the only positive. Um, didn't really bring anything unique to the table, really. No, it didn't. And and this was an industry, wasn't that est- as established as it is today. Mm. Um, it was in production for seven years, which is quite long for a car that flopped. Yeah. If you think about it now, if you listen to this podcast, how many Antares have you seen? And considering it was f- in production for seven years, it's pretty, really 
poor. Anyway, Chris, have you ever seen an Antara on the road? Never, actually, to be honest with you. But it was around the time the model was released that I first got my driving license. Oh, well. Uh, and I never would have considered something like that anyway, one for the price point and for the size. But, I don't know, even if you ever found something that could be considered a good deal on the Antara, having looked into it, think depreciation would see like, soon see that off. Yeah. Like, Fox holes in general do depreciate quite a bit, unless you look at things like the Corsa. Yeah. So. Well, the, the interesting thing is, obviously, Vauxhall used to have just the Antara as a crossover, and now they've got three with the Crossland, Grandland, and the Mocha. Mm. The Mocha was the first crossover post-Antara, and they've obviously they've taken the feedback on board from the Antara, and rather than improve the Antara, they probably looked at it and thought, do you know what, the word Antara is now tainted. Need We're going to have around. to move on to, to because people will just remember it. Uh, but it, because the Mocha's quite quite good now, um, and, and the crossover range is is nowhere near as it was actually quite good and mm. yeah they much are, improved. They're the affordable crossovers these days, aren't they? Yeah, they just I think Vauxhall maybe rushed to get into the SUV market and just came up with a poor product, tried to push it for probably a bit too long. Like I mentioned earlier, that with the wind, they realized quickly there was no demand for it and it wasn't going to work. But I think Vauxhall maybe pushed it for a bit longer than they should. Mm, instead of cutting their losses. Is it, yeah, instead of cutting their losses. Um, but, but, but anyway, what, what's next? Speaking of cars that should have cut its losses, the uh, Nissan Pulsar is next. Uh, yeah, well, this is, this is quite interesting because the Pulsar isn't really that bad of a car. But the weird thing about the, the, the Pulsar, in my opinion, it's, it's like a slightly bigger Micra. Mm. You know, the current-gen Micra that's now got a body... That is a bit sporty when the micro has always been associated with small sort of square square cars, but it you know it had a poor demand because they didn't have a hatchback, a family hatchback, and they wanted to get into that market and rushed it maybe a little bit. I was reading that they wanted to compete with the likes of Ford, like the Ford Focus getting into the yeah. fleet sector, and they were very sort of white goods. I think they produced a car that was too mundane, like too fleet yeah, oriented. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the boffins over at Nissan HQ thought to themselves, we're doing all right at the moment. The Duke's doing really well. The Qashqai's doing really well. The Micra's really doing well. Why don't we just make a hatchback version of that? Mm. And I think they just assumed it would do quite well. When in reality, the Pulsar's quite uninspiring. It's nothing special. Um, it's, It's below the focus, which is extremely strong at that point. Um, it wasn't gonna get. It wasn't gonna compete with the, the Germans in terms of the Audi and the Volkswagen. Mm. It wasn't gonna compete with the Ford. And at that time, the South Koreans, in terms of the Kia scene, had been around for a while. When I don't think the research department of Nissan really thought about it enough, thinking if we were to get into this department, who are our competitors, and can we make something better? Mm. I don't think they came out with something better. They just thought they needed to produce a hatchback model. But at the time, the Duke was doing incredibly well. And, you know, in the same way that Volkswagen's Golf is their flagship model, the Duke should have just been their go-to one to double down on it. Yeah, I think Nissan should have realised, we're doing all right with what we've got. Let's stick with it. Let's not try and, you know, over overextend our reach. They've done it. And then, you know, that's what happened. A, subs- a product was not good enough to compete with cars that, were um, about to be and roll out. In fact, it was released when the Focus had been around for quite a while, mm. so they had no chance. I think they lasted for about six, seven years. Twenty eleven, I think it came out. 
uh, um, ended in 2018. Um, but another case of manufacturers not really thinking about whether they should. They, you know, they just thought we can, so let's try it. The Pulsar today looks quite similar to the new Nissan Micro, I feel, anyway. Yeah. It's of a, of a similar ilk, whereas the old Micro was quite small, you know, noticeably yeah. shorter than it is now. Uh, maybe they've uh, used the same chassis or some some elements from that to save some money. The thing about Nissan is that at the moment they they they're quite crossover heavy. Mm. Um, they're quite innovative in terms of the leaf, but saloon hatchback it is an area they're not that good into. And perhaps no. have they ever really been in that? Like the Pulsar is um, like the Sunny. The Sunny was discontinued for a similar one, and there was a long gap. And then they came back into it, and then they realised, ah, oh, now, you know, let's, we shouldn't have tried that. It reminds me a little bit like the current Suzuki Baleno. Yeah. Baleno, I, I don't know how you pronounce it. But that's not discontinued at the moment, but my prediction would be it's going to be. Yeah, it does feel like it shouldn't really exist in the range. Yeah, like in the Europe, I think, I don't know enough about the Japanese market, but the European market is notoriously quite difficult to get into if you're not an European brand. The same as American market is quite difficult if you're not an American brand. Mm. And I, I probably would guess that the Japanese market is quite difficult unless you're a Japanese brand. And I think some of them don't realise just how difficult it is to sell a product to an European if you're not an European brand. Mm. It's not the first time Japanese brands and American brands have failed, and a few of them are on this list. Like, you can make, if you make a poor car, you've got no chance. But even if you make a half-decent car, you still haven't got, an, you know, enough of a chance if you're not already in the niche. For example, the Qashqai is already in the niche because they came in when it was early. Um, and if you are coming into the, to the market late and you're not an European brand and the product isn't clearly superior, it's not going to work. They ended up inventing something that was instantly outdated. Yeah, yeah. Because if you were to look at a 2018 Pulsar, which was the last year of production, it's nowhere near the quality of 2018 brands that were already there. Mm. And I think the Suzuki Balino is this, is a similar thing. Like it's Suzuki Balino has actually been around for a while now. But if you say, you know, when was the last time you saw a Balino on the road? Not that common. The only no. reason I've seen a couple is because I live around the corners. To a chapel house which has Suzuki, uh, and I, yeah, so you're pretty much forced to see them. Aren't yeah, you? yeah, but I don't live near a, a, a Nissan dealership, and I've you know a Pulsar's quite rare. What's next? Uh, we have the Toyota Urban Cruiser up next, which I've seen down the motorway quite a few times, and I originally thought, yeah, it's actually quite nice, but on closer, closer inspection, I was thinking, oh, maybe not. It's a bit uninspiring. It is just a big box, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got some notes here on the Urban Cruiser. Um, and the most interesting is if, if you use Google and start typing that out, Toyota Urban Cruiser, the next word it want, it thinks that you want is problems. <sighs> and that should tell you straight away why it didn't do very well. Toyota, which is, yeah, do you know what? You don't associate that with Toyota at all, do you? It, no, it's actually the complete opposite. Toyotas are, uh, are known to be bomb-proof, yeah. very reliable, innovative, but it wasn't the case with the Urban Cruiser at the time. Didn't have great reviews. 
there wasn't an existing niche for it. I mean, it's a hatchback. And then someone else may say, no, it's a crossover, but, but is it? Mm. I don't think it's either. And It's the halfway, isn't it? Really? Yeah. And it's similar to the car that we mentioned earlier that had two years end cap, which is the Chrysler Upsilon. It had poor safety. This, uh, I think the reason why this is short-lived is because, well, for, well, first and foremost, it was a poorly received car. But second, it's when brands try to create a niche that doesn't exist yet, and then they realise that it isn't a demand for it. Mm. There is a demand for small crossovers, um, but there, isn't a dem- there wasn't a demand for this at the time. The closest thing that I can think that the Toyota Urban Cruiser is, is similar to the Fiesta Active, but the Toyota Urban Cruiser is quite small, actually. Yeah. And this existed between sort of 2009 to 2012. So the new Ford Focus Active, or Fiesta Active, whichever trim, it's it's the right time now. People want that crossover style. Whereas this was literally like a crossover back then. Like, it was the full version. Uh, the next one, Chris, is I think if anyone who's listened to this podcast listens to the name of this car, I don't think it will be a surprise why it didn't do very well in the European market because this was another car that did all right in its native Japanese market, and that's the Nissan Cube. This is actually a good car, but it didn't it didn't do very well, and it had low demand, and it carried on being in production way after it ceased production in Europe. Possibly a global thing, that, because the roads are quite thin in Japan, so maybe the car like that was just something they would just export over here. It Maybe they were just making loads of them anyway. It looks very Japanese, even though it's a square. It's very round in its design. It's a th- it's cars like this, and you can throw in the Fiat Multipla into the same one. Is niche cars are one thing, but when you go too far towards niche, you're running the risk of being too niche. And this this is one of them. It's one of those cars that uh, you know people that go into the uh, Nissan dealership will have to think to themselves: Am I willing to have people look at that car and go, "Blimey, look at that car." Enough to drive around with it, mm. um, but but no, I think I think the car didn't do very well because in Europe, people like standard cars, and when they do go for niche cars, it's not this niche. I think um, one of the advantages it did have, uh, albeit a, quite a niche one, is that it was uh, a wheelchair accessible vehicle, and there aren't many of those. Yeah, it's it's an odd one. Uh, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot here because we've been, you know, going off some notes just to make sure that we bring up the points that we want to do with this podcast. Mm. But I'm going to throw some cars at you here that were short-lived, um, but not it's not obvious why they weren't short-lived. Number one, Skoda Yeti. I think it was probably Cannabis and a lot of other Volkswagen Audi Group members. Yes. Um, would you have one? Or would you have was too late? Well, you can still if, buy them if used I now. one, yeah. Probably would, actually, yeah. Because I wouldn't need to go all the way up to, I don't know, a Volkswagen or an Audi just to have a car of that. I don't know. I suppose if you're buying a Yeti, you want practicality and the yeah. most room you could probably get in a car like that. So, I don't know. If I, if I go on camping trips all the time, yeah, I'd probably have one. But every day, nah. I can't so really now, drive big cars anyway. We had an unbelievable offer on the Yeti uh, more than five years ago now. And we were big fans, and we still are big fans of, of the Yeti, the old car leasing office. Because on paper, not looking at the way that the car looks, 
It was one of the best crossovers you could have got at the time. Mm. It had Vo- it was obviously Vauxhall on the inside, Vox uh, Vauxhall, Volkswagen on the inside, Volkswagen on the outside. But the look was a bit. It was a big rectangle. They did the Skoda designers did not try to make it look yeah. to pander to their to to um. It didn't really look like any other Skoda. No, it was a fantastic car with incredible capabilities, and because it was um. A Skoda badge, but with Volkswagen technology, it was incredible value for money. It was somewhat short-lived. Um, it did go on for, I think, well over eight years, but they didn't renew it. The, uh, the, it was replaced by is it the Kodiak, yeah, which isn't a successor really at all. It's, it's bit... more in line with the whole SUV thing, though. Yeah, you touched it a minute ago. Um, about like um, it was cannibalizing sales, and in my opinion, it was cannibalizing Skoda's, Seat, and Volkswagen's, and Audi's. For whoever who um, we've mentioned it a few times in the past, um, some people buy the badge, and I think the Yeti was people were actually buying it instead of an, a, a badge that was way above it. Mm. I would say that some people who wanted a crossover but with a Volkswagen badge were looking at the Yeti and buying it. Whereas people at Volkswagen were like, hey, that, you know, that's not fair. We're not selling Q3s. People are going for Yetis because they don't care enough about the looks. But there's an assumed quality there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and people did buy it because of, of that reason. And I think they've got to put a stop to it. The next one uh, I wanted to bring up, which is, was short-lived. The brand was short-lived. It was the last bra- uh, car belonged to this brand. And it's a Saab 9.5. And the reason I want to bring this up with you, Chris... It's because on the balance of it, people people were fond of Saabs at the time. And they were very fond of the 9.5, but not fond enough. Architect's car. That was the reputation Saab used to have, isn't it? Yeah, it was. it's the competitor to a Volvo, specifically to the Volvo. Hmm. And I, in my opinion, the reason it didn't do well, because people were going for C30s, maybe. Or you know, V40s, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um I don't know what the price point of Saabs were, but I know that today, even though they're discontinued, they have a bit of a cult following. Like, it's a nice car to own. I think even the little things with Saab that people used to appreciate was, like, the drinks holder. It used yeah. to fall out in such an efficient way, and it was different to every other car manufacturer. The thing about Saab was, it's not a brand that people look back and think it was a poor brand. It's a brand that people look back and think, oh, that was a good car, but... I went for I went for a Mondeo instead, or went for a Focus instead. Well, Saab ended up focusing on what they did best, wasn't it? And that, yeah. was, that was trucks. So yeah, double down on that now. So this was a short-lived car that I think was. I think people didn't realize what how good it was until it was too late. Right, the last one I'm going to bring up with you, Chris, is it's not a short-lived because I believe that you can still buy it. It's a Land Rover. Range Rover mm. convertible. I don't know. Don't think I would ever have one of those. No. Mm. Have you ever seen one? No, I've not. I've seen. I've seen an Evoque convertible. If I say to you, Range Rover, Land Rover, Ra- Land Rover, Range Rover Evoque, what do you think straight away? Tongue twister. <laughs> but aside from that, I think uh, one of those toy cars that you get for your kids. You know the ones full size. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But does it make you think of a beach? Does it make you think of taking the top down? Um, no, but the purpose of that car, Land Rover would have to say, yeah, it's made for going down the beach. Because 
what you associate with Land Rover going off road, you know, muddy terrain. You wouldn't want the roof down for something like that. It'd be insane. The thing that makes me think when I, uh, what makes me think, what I think about when I think about the uh, Range Rover Road convertible is, is Tata or Land Rover, whatever you want to call them, thinking to themselves, how much more money can we make about from this? Mm. These cars are selling a hotcakes. Let's charge them a few thousand more and give them a roof to take down. And, you know, yeah, let's vary it as much people as will buy it. There's a coupe as well, isn't there? There's an about coupe. About yeah, I think back. the coupe is is stretching it because the coupe is, is the cheapest of oak. But the top down is not the cheapest of oak. Mm. I think it's, a, personally, I think it's a bit of a gimmick. I think they've started to realise that though now. Because there was a full fat Range Rover coupe in development. Yeah. And they axed it right right before the launch. That was a recent thing as well. I think this car is going to join the shortlist list at some point. Uh, but but not quite yet. Uh, but anyway, that is the list of the ones. Obviously, there are plenty of more cars out there that were short-lived. We just picked these because, obviously, if you have a look at the age of myself, Chris, and Richard, then these are the cars that we will have seen at the beginning of their um, be- being made and, obviously, at the demise. Um, obviously, there are cars in the 70s that didn't last long, but, you know, these are the ones that people people in their yeah. 20s, mid-20s, early 30s, maybe even late 30s will probably be, um, could remember themselves. Um, but anyway, if there's more that you can think of, um, you know, let us know in the comment section. We made it added to the blog. We probably won't add it to the podcast because it's already been recorded by that point. But anyway, if you've liked it, uh, and you like this sort of content, you know, like and subscribe and all the rest of it. But for now, I'm going to hand this podcast over for a regular segment where Chris talks about our deals that you should really look at at this time. I will look forward to having you for the next podcast. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you. Cheers, Ronnie. So, some of the best value for money on our special offers this week is the Jaguar XF. We've managed to secure some in stock and with significantly more discount available than any of our competitors. Uh, what we have is the 2 litre 250 brake horsepower R Sport model. That's with the automatic gearbox, which means you'll get the sporty looks sort of with the power to match. On top of things like heated seats, uh, leather, full leather interior, 18 inch alloys, and smartphone mirroring software as well, such so as Apple CarPlay, Android Auto. Uh, it's available from a deeply competitive £275 a month with £2,483 up front. But that be for a two-year deal with an annual mileage of 5000 which, of course, you can up the mileage to a maximum of 30000 So up next is the Ford Fiesta Titanium X, which our podcast host Ronnie has actually gone for himself. Uh, it's available from £152 a month on a four-year deal with 5000 miles. It's a really good car to consider if you're looking at the likes of a Volkswagen Golf or an entry-level one. If you don't quite need that level of practicality, you can have this quite well spec Fiesta for similar money. Whereas an entry level Golf wouldn't have things like heated seats, uh, part leather interior, keyless entry, sat nav, cruise control, that sort of thing. But all the prices I've mentioned here are inclusive of that. So if you're looking to lease through a business, you'd be able to claim that back. So on these cars. Anyway, that's all we have for this week. So be sure to follow us on Facebook if you want to keep up to date with the latest deals. But until next time, thank you for listening.